For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good evening. So I'm happy to introduce tonight uh, for us as our speaker, David Ray, who's spoken here before, but uh, I'll just introduce him again as our head. Do- he's our head doan, uh, one of our members from Hyde Park, and is the new member of the Ancient Dragons End Gate Board. Uh, and I want to take the opportunity to thank everyone who uh, was willing to stand for election for the board and uh, there are many ways to uh, uh, help Ancient Dragon, uh, so uh, we will be talking about that in Sangha meetings coming up, and uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, David Ray is a professor of classics at the University of Chicago. I'm not sure if that's relevant to his talk tonight, but anyway, David, thank you very much for speaking. Hi again. And good evening, everybody. Well, I'm grateful to be here on this um, winter Chicago night as we're coming up on the solstice. Um, for me, I'm also coming up on the um, third uh, third year, third anniversary of practicing here at Ancient Dragons. Uh, so I very much feel myself uh, a newcomer and a beginning student. And tonight's talk is going to be very um, student-like. Um, that's either an apology or a warning. It's basically uh, a book report, or at least it starts like that. I'm going to be talking about this book, which is uh, called The Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way, and it's by Nagarjuna. Here's a uh, Tibetan image of Nagarjuna. Uh, It's also kind of a, a committee report, because several of us in the Sangha have been meeting every month to read and discuss um, a chapter of this book um, you'll also see this book, by the way, referred to as MMK. If you start looking it up online, that's an abbreviation of its Sanskrit title. So Nagarjuna, who was Nagarjuna? He lived in India in the second and third centuries, uh, which was a time uh, before Zen, of course, but when Mahayana Buddhism, the Bodhisattva Buddhism, was uh, and and the, the Buddhism of the teaching of emptiness was um, just emerging and was clearly a very hot uh, topic for debate and controversy. Some sources say that uh, Nagarjuna was um, was born into a Hindu Brahmin family. Um, it, that, that sounds right, given his name, which means something like um, snake hero. It's definitely not a Buddhist name. So if that's the case, then Nagarjuna was um, a convert. Buddhist, like I'm guessing most of the people that I'm looking at, and of course, like um, like Shakyamuni's first sangha. After Nagarjuna's writings were translated into Chinese, they became a key influence in the development of Huayan uh, or uh, Kagon Buddhism, the Buddhism of the Flower Ornament Sutra, which is uh, a text that we read in another reading group. Uh, Taigen has written about Huayan Buddhism and recently gave a wonderful seminar on it. And Huayan Buddhism um, permeates the thinking of Dogen, the founder of our school. 
So Nagarjuna is one of our pivotal ancestors uh, in this worldwide space-time sangha that has always been international and cosmopolitan, from India to China to Japan, uh, the rest of Asia, to San Francisco, to Chicago, and in all the 10 directions. So Nagarjuna's family here. The MMK has 27 chapters, all of them uh, impenetrably difficult on first reading, at least to me. In our monthly group, uh, we lean very heavily on the commentary in this edition by Jay Garfield. Garfield is an American Buddhist practitioner, but also a Western-style analytic philosopher. So you could say that Jay Garfield uses the philosophical tradition of our ancestors, uh, Plato and Aristotle, to explicate the writing of our of our ancestor Nagarjuna. The core group members are Dylan, uh, Wade, Bryant, and myself, and we've been visited by Jan, Anastasia, Co, and Joe. I think I got everybody. So here's how this book works. Every chapter stages a debate between Nagarjuna and a so-called opponent. So it's like Dharma combat. The opponent is clearly a devout, erudite, and highly intelligent old-school Buddhist practitioner who uses all his intellectual power to resist the claim that all dharmas are marked by emptiness. Each new chapter is kind of like a a cartoon episode. Uh, I've compared it to Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, where the opponent basically comes out saying, hey, Nagarjuna, you know, I think I have found something in the world that is definitely not empty. That something might be action or desire or suffering or nirvana, the Four Noble Truths, or the Buddha. In every chapter, Nagarjuna goes on to answer and refute the opponent by the philosophical method called reductio ad absurdum, reduction to the absurd. By demonstrating that if this chapter's particular item in the world really were non-empty, there would follow some logical conclusion that is absurd and obviously false, even obviously false to the dualistic rational thinking mind. So using logic, like, you know, like high school geometry logic to prove universal emptiness sounds like a really wild idea, and it is. But we can also say that this book, just the mere fact of writing this book, also shows Nagarjuna's total faith in the already awakened enlightenment of ordinary thinking mind. Now I should say something about emptiness, shunyata in Sanskrit. Sometimes uh, Mahayana Buddhists say that they wish that we would use a different English translation for shunyata instead of emptiness something like Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful word, interbeing, because emptiness sounds potentially, you know, so lonely and depressing, um, like a life that feels devoid of meaning or a cookie jar with no cookies in it. Emptiness turns out to mean just the opposite of that. Um, however, and pardon my geeking here, the Sanskrit adjective shunya, like, like its Chinese and Japanese translations, really does literally mean empty. The word is a philosophical technical term in this really um, very um, evolved and sophisticated intellectual milieu. So empty of what? Well, shunya is actually an abbreviation for the longer expression, the Sanskrit expression, uh, sva bhava shunya, where sva means self, bhava means uh, being, and shunya means empty. So we could translate that literally as empty of self-being, 
But that's almost kind of misleading because that sounds like we're talking about the Dharma teaching of no self, that which is actually a different word, anatta, no personal self. Um, a lot of uh, sort of popularizing writing about Buddhism does say that emptiness is just about no personal self. It's not like that's wrong, but emptiness is something much more vast than personal self or, or personal non-self. Um, emptiness is all-encompassing. So uh, in the phrase spa bhava shunya, this word spa, S-V-A, is cognate with the Latin prefix um, S-E, as in English words like separate or sequester, secluded. So a really precise translation, um, and this is the one that Taigen usually uses, of, of spa bhava shunya is, would be um, empty of separate being. And that's why I call this talk, Emptiness is Being Together. What is, is empty of distinctions, and the distinctions are empty. So now I want to offer a taste of how Nagarjuna argues. I'll describe three chapters of this book. Um, And along the way, I'll also say why the middle way, as this book is also called, is another name for emptiness. Chapter five is called Examination of Elements. Here we can imagine the opponent saying something like this. Hey, Nagarjuna, I totally agree with you on the emptiness of material things like um, buildings and bodies and stars. But you know what I think must be non-empty? The elements. Underneath transitory matter, there's a material substratum of elements, and these are really real. The elements are inherent Uh, separate, they have essential non-empty being. So prove me wrong, Nagarjuna. The opponent's position sounds pretty reasonable, right? It's been held by a lot of thinkers around the world. Um, The the Greek philosopher Epicurus was one of, I guess, was the first atomist. Well, I guess uh, there was maybe one before that. But anyway, who said that everything is made of atoms and void. And Epicurus also said that the atoms are eternal and essential and unchanging. So here's how Nagarjuna responds to the opponent. Um, His actual words are very complicated, but the argument itself is so simple and beautiful. And it works whether we're talking about the six Buddhist elements, uh, or uh, Epicurus's eternal atoms, or the neutrinos and photons of of subatomic physics, or whatever, whatever they are now. Nagarjuna says something like this, elements are matter, right? And whatever is present as matter also has characteristic properties, right? The element never arises without the property, and the property never arises without the element. Nagarjuna uses the example of space, akasha. The suchness of space includes the property of being non-resistant, and space is never separate from non-resistance. We could say the same with any other, uh, anything else that we posit as an element. So Nagarjuna's argument is that the reason why elements are empty is because no element ever has a being that is all alone and on its own in the world. Matter in its suchness, all the way down to its most basic elements, is marked by the togetherness of emptiness. 
So if we take Nagarjuna's insight forward in time to the Heart Sutra, we could gloss the words that we just chanted, form itself as emptiness, emptiness itself form as something like suchness itself is togetherness, togetherness itself suchness. The word that gets translated form in the Heart Sutra um, literally means body or matter. Matter by being empty is always already caught up in Indra's interweb uh, with a jewel uh, at every node in the net and every jewel reflecting the radiance of every other jewel in the net. In the last line of this chapter, um, of the, uh, the one about the elements, Nagarjuna says that when we understand the emptiness of material elements, we will experience what he calls the pacification of objectification. That's Jay Garfield's beautiful translation. Uh, elsewhere, it gets translated as the auspicious cessation of objectification, or we could call it the relief and relaxation we get to experience when we take a break from objectifying what is. So I want to suggest that maybe the intimate, tender patience or aesthetic seeing and creative process, something like an artist actually slowing down and drawing a person and rendering them as they look instead of, you know, instead of making a stick figure. Things like that might be close to what Nagarjuna is calling the pacification of objectification. It also sounds a lot, of course, like what Uchiyama Roshi calls opening the hand of thought. Chapter two is called uh, Examination of Motion. Here the opponent raises a familiar and rather appealing objection to the teaching that all dharmas are marked by emptiness. Hey, Nagarjuna, given that reality flows, given that all things are in constant change and motion, don't you have to agree that change or motion is a fundamental reality? Don't you have to agree that motion has inherent existence and is therefore non-empty? Here, Nagarjuna's refutation by reduction to the absurd, once understood, is almost humorous. So he says, okay, if motion were non-empty, that would mean it would have to have separate existence. So let's imagine that motion has separate existence. In that case, this supposedly separate motion either arises in things that are not yet moving or else it arises in things that are already moving. No third possibility. But to say that motion arises in something not yet moving is absurd, because there's no motion if something isn't moving. And to say that motion arises in something already moving is even more absurd, because then we have to imagine motion sort of hopping onto something right after it starts moving, like somebody running after a bus. Nagarjuna is not denying the possibility of motion or the fact of motion. Nagarjuna is inviting us to see that motion as an objectifying conceptual category just doesn't name anything separate or independent from everything else in reality. This is why Nagarjuna calls emptiness the middle way, because it steers, as he says, the middle course between, on the one hand, reifying objectifying, essentializing, and on the other hand, nihilistically saying that there's nothing at all. This is also another way of, of stating what Nagarjuna elsewhere calls uh, the teaching of two truths, one ultimate and one conventional. 
which then becomes an important concept in several of the Chinese teaching poems that we chant. To say that motion is an empty category in ultimate reality is not to deny that things do move in conventional reality, the reality where it's really important to get out of the way of a bus and the reality where it's really important to see what's going on around us and to make an appropriate response. In fact, Nagarjuna insists that emptiness is what makes all motion possible in the first place, including the kind of motion that we call Buddha's way, walking the Bodhisattva path, and including the kind of motion that we call walking down the street. Finally, chapter three is called Examination of the Senses. Um, Not going to lie, I found chapter two on motion really rough going. Without the group, I would definitely have given up on trying to read this book. But chapter three on the senses really drew me in and helped me start enjoying Nagarjuna, partly because I found that I could connect it to things like aesthetic experience of music, poetry, bird song, nature songs, partly because it seems to me to resonate with the branch of Western philosophy called phenomenology, the branch that focuses on appearances and perceptions, and partly because this chapter, I think, offers beautiful new insight into the Heart Sutra. By new, I mean new to me. The Heart Sutra is four or 500 years later than Nagarjuna, it seems. Uh, Some scholars think that it was originally composed in Chinese, And according to the classical Chinese novel, Journey to the West, uh, the way the Heart Sutra came into the world is that uh, um, Guanyin Bodhisattva gave it as a protective magic spell to the Tang Dynasty known Xuanzang as he was traveling on foot from China to India to bring back a very large backpack full of sutras. So in the chapter on the senses, uh, the opponent says something like, hey, Nagarjuna, Maybe everything out there in the world is empty, but one class of thing that is definitely not empty and definitely inherently real is my sense perception, my seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, and thinking. In Buddhist psychology, thinking is uh, the sixth of the senses. Alongside the opponent's objection, we can also add a story that Taigen tells in his book, Just This Is It. Dongshan, as a child, was studying the Heart Sutra with his tutor. When they got to the line, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, Dongshan put his fingers to his face and said, I have eyes, ears, a nose, a tongue, and so on. Why does the sutra say that they don't exist? To his very great credit, the Tudor said to Dongshan, you need a better teacher. And Dongshan went off to a Chan temple to study and eventually to become one of our great ancestors. Nagarjuna's response to his opponent in this chapter also gives one version of an answer to Dongshan's much later question about the Heart Sutra. So Nagarjuna explains that sense perception is always, to use Garfield's phrase, a relational phenomenon. There is no separate thing called vision apart from the seer, and there is also no vision apart from the seen object or apart from the realm that is the medium of sight. 
This is why sense perception is empty, says Nagarjuna. Here's one way of running his argument for the emptiness of perception. If you're sitting and you hear bird song or dog barking like tonight, uh, but I'm going to stick with the bird, where is the hearing happening? If the phenomenon, this dharma called hearing, were a non-empty thing with separate existence, then where should we say that it is located? Is it in your organ or faculty of hearing? Is it in the bird sitting in the tree? Is it in the medium of vibrating air that you can't perceive, but somehow do perceive? Is it in all those places and not in any of those places? Just attending, just sitting, and lending attention to the seeing or hearing or tasting or smelling or touching or thinking that's happening and happening not inside you, not outside you, and not in between can be an experience of the intimate togetherness and spaciousness of emptiness. So I'm going to stick with this um, with this idea and sort of move deeper into, um, into Nagarjuna's maybe implications of of Nagarjuna's argument. There's a collection of poems called um, Sonnets to Orpheus by the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke. One of these sonnets has the line, O Orpheus sings, O tall tree in the ear. A friend of mine used to tell me the story of his high school German teacher, a very literal-minded German woman, who would quote this line by Rilke as proof that German poets are crazy, because how could a tall tree ever fit in your ear? But you know, whenever Orpheus strums his lyre, whenever you hear a piano or a guitar, violin, any wooden instrument with a string, that which once was a tall tree, and somehow still is a tall tree, is now literally in your organ and faculty of hearing. In Greek mythology, Orpheus moved trees with the beauty of his song, the beauty of the vibration of his song. And now the vibrating motion of a tall tree is moving inside you and not inside you in the intimate togetherness of emptiness. When the Heart Sutra is chanted in Japanese or Chinese or Sanskrit, The word no occurs a lot fewer times than it does in the English version that we just chanted. The original says, no, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, no, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, object of mind, and then no realm of sight all the way down to no realm of mind. That third one is abbreviated. No no realm of mind consciousness. So maybe without without all of those no's, sort of all the, the static of all those no's, it might be easier to see how these lines fall into three groups and how they are pointing to the same thing that Nagarjuna explains, namely that sense perception can only be understood as a relational dependent phenomenon that is therefore empty of separateness, no separate faculty of perception, no separate object of perception, and no separate realm or medium of perception, but only a relational event that we call perception, an event that arises 
in the interbeing of emptiness, to put birds in trees and cars on roads in your ears, as you might especially notice when you sit facing the wall. What is it that we are experiencing when we experience being together? What gives us humans the feeling of being together? I think that most of the togetherness feeling comes to us through the senses, through sense perception, including kinds of very subtle sense, subtle sense perception that don't rise to the level of consciousness. Sometimes the feeling is more, uh, is more intense rather than subtle. Choral singing or chanting together sometimes gives that powerful feeling of togetherness. When you feel your skull vibrating with the other skulls in the room, when we chant together, the Sangha has a voice. And where is that voice? Right? It's not inside or outside you or in between. It's an entity and a non-entity. Different people get that experience in different, um, in different ways in the world, whether it's hiking, nature walks, something else. I think that a group of us might have had a very tender experience of this feeling of togetherness right here several Saturdays ago when we had moved our things from Ebenezer and we were sitting in this warm, welcoming, resonant chamber, this musical instrument, and we were just sitting here like this, seeing and sensing each other and just being together as we waited for the next thing to happen. Know you, know me. Not the same and not different. Not merged into one and not separate. Emptiness. Um, another place of realizing togetherness through sense perception that I am especially grateful for in my life is practicing together on Zoom. Um, I'm glad to see my Dharma friends in the Zoom Mahasanga tonight. And of course, we know that some people say that Zoom seeing isn't really seeing and Zoom hearing isn't really hearing, to which we might say, yeah, and seeing isn't really seeing and hearing isn't really hearing. Uh, there is no such entity. Seeing and hearing are more intimate than that. They're empty. There's no seeing apart from the seer and seen and the realm of sight. And it's good to see you and be seen in this realm that we share. So emptiness is being together and Nagarjuna is pretty cool. And um, that's, that's what I had to say tonight. And I would love to hear anything that might come forth for you in response. Nagarjuna is amazing and so difficult. Brian has something. I see Brian. Brian, my, my Dharma friend, you have the eloquence of a bodhisattva and you could lecture for an hour about the context of Nagarjuna. And I know you're going to demonstrate your remarkable brevity. <laughs> and I will spare you all all of that. I just wanted to say, David, that was an excellent explanation. 
uh, and summation of all the Nagarjuna we've studied so far, and indeed, uh, really, uh, the gist. Once you've gotten the gist of emptiness, uh, every every subsequent chapter is just another iteration of the application of that understanding. And so you did an excellent job explaining it, I thought. Um, and so I was going to make one quick uh, fun fact observation and then ask you a question. Uh, the fun fact is that you mentioned the Heart Sutra and its origins. Uh, Jan Natier, I might not be pronouncing her name correctly. Tigan knows the correct pronunciation. Did some research on this. Um, and found that the Heart Sutra that we know is essentially almost verbatim lifted from the large Prajnaparamita. Um, there's a section in that large Prajnaparamita that's literally the Heart Sutra. And then the Chinese tacked on the beginning and tacked on the mantra that we say at the end, Gate Gate Paragate. Um, so I, I always found that to be um, from a historical perspective very interesting but so if, if anyone was geeky enough to find that interesting i thought i'd throw that out there um question is um you've been an awesome moderator of the nagarjuna group and you have done excellent jobs uh at our various meetings of sort of providing summary statements of what we had gone through um so i would ask it i would reflect it back onto you given all that we've been through so far and we're still not even halfway um in your enthusiasm for emptiness etc how how would you say that it's changed your perspective on things or your view of just life uh most obviously or most saliently for you? Thank you for that question. Um, the, the first thing that, that, I, uh, that I notice is that, um, this, will, this may sound strange, but reading Dogen is a really different experience now after studying Nagarjuna. Um, um, it has... Um, taken me to a new level of not understanding Dogen. I guess that's another way. <laughs> I think I'm, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but really at, at, at the beginning, you know, um, I, I would have a talk you know, with, with you, Taigen, and you would, you know, you would encourage me to, to go read some Dogen, and I would, I would try, and I would look at the words on the page, and um, there just wasn't any traction. Um, so that's, that's one thing that, that, it, that is different. Um, it also, for me, I mean, this this is this is some of what I was talking about. Um, it feels connected to uh, for me to practice and the attention to things in the world, like sense perception that are available all the time. So, you know, no secret that chapter is the one that just really. Um, felt like it cracked open Nagarjuna for me. I did a lot more when we talked about desire and the desirous, and, and you know, brought in a sort of made sort of a little a little comic book thing to to talk about it, and that was fun. But the but the chapter on the senses is the one that really feels like it 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 has the potential for me to to transform the experiences of of practice. So thank you. Thank you.
so this past weekend, uh, Hogetsu and I were helping someone so Arakusu, um, Shafiq, who's joining us from Detroit. And I had this moment, I'm going to get to a point, um, but I, I had this moment of, of really talking to her, um, a deep, deep appreciation for our sangha, even though uh, there were only three of us in the room. Something about her not being able to practice in person uh, often with her sangha, though though often online. And uh, and I think some of the point you're making, perhaps, if I can put this on you, is that the sangha is like we are we are each each other, right? We 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 build this all together, and there's no way that we can be practicing alone. Um, so uh, amazing gratitude. I would just like to express that. As I understand that in the context of emptiness in my own mind, perhaps that makes sense, perhaps not. Uh, but she, the topic of queerness came up and identity, and I know that's something that's very important to me and, and I think very important to you. And Shofi asked me, so how do you feel about this considering the Buddhist teaching of emptiness? Um, and I found that to be a very interesting question. Uh, and I started out an answer, but I would be interested uh, to hear yours. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, my go-to answer there is just is to um, think of um, Zenju Earthland Manual's um, book, The Way of Tenderness, which we're reading on, um, on Friday mornings. And um, she makes a very compelling um, case for the claim that um, Buddhist Dharma, the teaching of emptiness, um, is the opposite of, of telling you or me or anybody else to get over, uh, get over your identity somehow, you know, quit being involved in the things of this world that includes the, the identity markers that you bear and that I bear and that are, that are placed, on, placed on us. So not separating from the skin bag, right? right. Um, I mean, trying to separate from the question of identity is kind of the opposite direction from realizing um, emptiness. And by the way, um, I should mention that um, that this group um, and, and moderating this group um, um, was not an intention of mine at all. You know, Dylan said, I'd like to do an Agarjuna group. Um, um, Tygen says, I don't have time to moderate it, so you moderate it. And I said, okay, sounds good. And that's another place of the power of, of Sangha. I, I mean, I'm getting so much out of this group um, precisely because I'm preparing for it, you know, um, and I wouldn't be if I weren't moderating it. So I'm learning a lot about Nagarjuna from doing it. Um, I'm confident that I never would have read um, this book without Sangha because this book has been on my shelf for, I don't know, at least 15 years and I've, I've never cracked it open. So it's, you know, it's all the Sangha's fault that I'm now studying um, Nagarjuna.
I'll just note that Nagarjuna is officially one of in, in the lineage of Zen ancestors. Um, and actually, Nagarjuna is officially in the lineage of Pure Land ancestors and Yogacara ancestors and Hawaiian ancestors and just um, all, all Bodhisattva te- um, trends or teachings uh, see Nagarjuna as a great ancestor. And David, I want to thank you for the way you talked about emptiness and how it fits into Huayan and Dongshan and um, and just non-separation, which is a, a lovely way to talk about emptiness. Uh, so um, thank you very much for just uh, helping me recognize Nagarjuna again. And I'll just I'll just mention what Brian brought up. Jan Natier, who's a wonderful scholar, she's really brilliant. Um, her I have her article somewhere. I can try and send it to people if if you're interested. But um, she, yeah, as Bryant was saying, uh, just uh, for those of us who are Buddhist history geeks, to put it that way, um, yeah, as Bryant said, the Heart Sutra, which we take as uh, going back to India, actually was a Chinese Chinese uh, Durrani of, constructed from pieces of uh, Indian Buddhism. So um, anyway, uh, I'm, thank you for uh, having us chant that tonight, too. Again, I think you're muted. I assume that there are people here either on Zoom or in the Lincoln Square Zendo room who uh, have trouble with thinking about Shunyata. It's not, David really was helpful, but it's uh, it just the word emptiness as a translation. Um, leads us, as, as as David was indicating with all the no's, leads us to thinking of that it has something to do with nihilism, which it, it's, it, it isn't. It's not, 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 not. Um, <laughs> uh, Kaz Tanahashi, my friend Kaz, translates emptiness as boundlessness, which is a, a, a lovely way to to think about it. So just to say that. But I imagine that there are people here who have you know, if there's anybody else who has a question, we have a t- have time for one more comment or question. So uh, thank you, David. And I was wondering this this um, relationship between the book itself and the group in which you read it, and that experience is something different from 
say your the books that you read on your own for uh, other reasons. If you might elaborate a little bit on on how different that is, or you you said that because it was part of sangha, it was a different kind of experience. Mm, thank you, thank you for that question, Ed. Um, so it matters that uh, the people who are reading the book together are all engaged in practice together. We sit zazen for thirty minutes first. We chant uh, Nagarjuna's dedicatory verse before we before we read. Uh, we read the the sutra text and and then Garfield's commentary, just taking turns, sort of the way that we do the flower ornament sutra. Um, and then we have a conversation. Um, and um, I didn't I didn't quote much of the of Nagarjuna's sutra text. I mean, it's really impenetrable at the first. It's beautiful, but it's 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 just it's impenetrable. Um, and then Garfield kind of cracks it open and explicates it, and then our conversation finds ways to connect it back to <coughs> practice and 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 the Bodhisattva path. Um, Garfield is good at tying Nagarjuna's concept of en- emptiness to the liberational, you know, soteriological, as he keeps saying the word, you know, project of Bodhisattva Buddhism. And he highlights this almost paradox. He says, you know, you might, you know, you might want to say that something you really care about in the world just can't be empty because you want to hang up, because you want to preserve it and care for it and hang on to it. And, and that emptiness is precisely the thing that makes um, that makes liberation possible. Garfield is really eloquent. It's it's really beautiful. He's clearly someone you know engaged in practice, and he's clearly um, working hard to um, explain Nagarjuna to someone who comes from a Western philosophical concept. But again, um, it it would be a totally different conversation. If we were being, you know, in graduate student mode and and there wasn't the the practice, uh, the practice context, we would have a different kind of conversation for sure. By the way, our next meeting is on Wednesday. So um, um, everyone is very welcome. Um, You don't need to own the book. You don't need to read the chapter in advance. Um, It's it's like the flower ornaments which are reading group in that regard. Thank you. What t- uh, David, what time on Wednesday? We start at 7. Uh, is that right, Wade? 7, yes. right? S- 7, and then we have Zazen until 7.30, and then we do reading and discussion. Jason, you have something? Yeah. I have a tendency to get lost in the words. It's like so many trees. Uh, and trying to find a way through trees instead of just trying to appreciate the tree that's in front of me. Um, and a question of emptiness, that, you know, this is something I'm dwelling on as well, but is emptiness for Nadrana, Narjana, that makes that correct, uh, is. Um, Not so much that something is empty or something is not empty, but it's to not have any expectation of something being empty 
or not It's that expectation, that thought of even conjuring that. Do you understand where I'm trying to take this? Mm. I don't know if I'm making myself clear or not. Um, I, I like the sound of it. I'm getting a glimmer. <laughs> um, I like I like this you know connection that you're making about expectation. Yeah. Um, that I, I, I'm expecting things to be a certain way, and somebody is saying, "Oh, I expect them to be this way." Yeah. And the two of them are battling their expectations rather than just having nothing mm. in the sense, and I don't mean nothing of being void, but no preconception of mm. something. Mm. And it's our preconception that maybe gets in the way. For me, I get lost in the words because I try to follow everything, you know, so precisely, and I get lost, and that's my own thing. I have to go over it again and again and again. Mm. But that's my own expectation of wanting to understand everything and how that gets in a way. And so I say to you, I'm wondering, is, is another way of looking at this is not having any expectation and not looking for saying it's this way or it's this way. It's just is. Does that make sense? Thank you for that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we recently got to the chapter on... Um, Dependent arising, which is marvelous. It's sort of like the thing circling back on itself because the opponent says, okay, okay, okay. Um, dependent arising has got to be really real, right? Uh, if, if everything is dependently arising, then, then dependent arising has got to be the fundamental nature, right? Please let me hold on to something. <laughs> you know, and the guard is like, no, no, that, that's not the fundamental nature of reality either because it's empty. Um, so, um, I like that. I like, I like what you're saying very much about expectation. Um, maybe the thing that happened to me with chapter two, which really was a kind of, it, 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 it was kind of a crisis for me because I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't, couldn't make, uh, I couldn't make any headway with it. I think I did kind of stop trying to understand it um, quite so, quite so uh, intently. So um, yeah, that's, that's helpful. Thank you for that. I could just add a, an, an addendum to that in the dedicatory verses uh, that directly addresses, uh, the, and I wasn't clear who had the question, but he's exactly right, because ex, uh, expectations are like all of our ideas and thoughts and perceptions, they're conceptual constructions. And reality is different than our conceptual constructions. And Nagarjuna, in those dedicatory verses, says, <clears throat> I bow to the Buddha who taught that whatever is dependently arisen, which is all things, <clears throat> is free from conceptual construction. So all of our expectations are always wrong to some degree because they are not the flowing dependently arisen reality, which is real reality. <clears throat> so what we expect a person to be or an event to be how many times has that ever occurred exactly according to our expectations? Probably never. Um, but it is always just this. If we can cut through our conceptions, our constructions in our mind, 
and just, you know, are, are just resting in awareness of the present. Um, so that would be my, so the dedicatory verses would, would directly approve of his question and his observation.